0: Our reading today is from Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind." that at that name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: (laughs) Many thanks for reading that, Marigold. You don't have to look very far at the moment to find dispute and division. Internationally, the US elections are providing um, the watching world a spectacle of conflict. Yet nationally in the UK, no one could um, describe our political scene as harmonious. There is a distinct lack of common vision among our leaders in government, the leading scientists and the public about the right strategies to take in these times. We are a divided nation. Although that Brexit thing has gone a bit quiet recently. I'm not sure um, where that's gone. But it's not just politically. This time of international crisis is having an effect on our lives closer to home. Whether it's our places of work, our schools, our friendship networks, our sports teams, our homes, and even our church. We've all felt to some degree the loss of a common vision of harmony and oneness through this pandemic. That shouldn't be surprising. According to James Lawrence, an expert in leadership with CPAS, there are typical patterns that emerge in between times when you're coming out of a crisis and haven't yet arrived at a new normality. Uh, These are the typical behaviors of in-between times, anxiety rises, motivation falls, attendance drops off, old weaknesses and conflicts re-emerge, leaders are overwhelmed and overloaded, and people are polarized. Doesn't that chime with our experience of this time? I find it very insightful. Lawrence thinks that we'll be in this time for probably another year. Now that's all really helpful to know and to anticipate, but it's not exactly good news, is it? Another year of disconnection, not just physically through social distancing, but socially, relationally, and also spiritually. All of that can feel very unsettling. Yet we are not without hope in Christ. There is good news for us this morning and good news for our world today, through this word in Philippians two, one to 11. We're gonna pray again that God himself would minister to each of us this morning through it. So let's bow our heads and pray. Lord God, we praise you that you are boundless and ever present to us, not restricted like we are by computers and screens and social distancing. And so we pray that you would be with each one of us individually and with all of us collectively as we hear from you, speak to us and transform us in Christ, we pray. Amen. Just to briefly summarize where we've got up to so far in this letter, Paul writes with deep love and affection to the Christians in Philippi. Um, They're under tremendous pressure, but Paul's prayerfully confident and expectant that God will complete his work in them to the end. Just as God continues to grow and strengthen Paul, even through his imprisonment, so God will enable the Philippians to stand firm in Christ, whatever comes their way. For they remain secure in Christ. They too share in God's grace. Nothing, not even death, can take them away from him. In fact, despite appearances, their own suffering and opposition is actually a means of participating in the life of Christ. And so Paul says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Which brings us to Philippians chapter two. What does it mean to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ? What does that look like in the life of the church? How are they and we to stand firm when we feel pretty weak and powerless, when when Paul's still in prison for them, And, and the ruling and cultural and social authority seems so much more powerful and dominant than the church? How do we stand firm amidst the chaos and the confusion and the challenges we face in the church today? Through Christian unity. Essentially, that's Paul's message you are united to Christ, so pursue unity with one another. Yet Paul knows that that's easier said than done. So he helps them and us to see how that unity is found. He says, secondly, by the example of Christ, pursue unity through humility. So first, you are united to Christ, so pursue unity with one another. Reading again, From verse one, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one in mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of the others. Paul is clearly very impassioned about this. He really does love uh, the Philippians and their unity with one another is so important to him. But notice the grounds on which he speaks about this unity. He says, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, before telling them how they ought to live, Paul reminds them of who they are, people united with Christ, recipients of his love and grace, who share in his life by the spirit. The doctrine of union with Christ is something we've been reminded of lots recently. And that's because it's so fundamental to our Christian lives and discipleships. It means being one with Christ at the beginning and always. The Christian life is not just about being forgiven of sin and saved from its consequences and then becoming better versions of ourselves until we wait for heaven. The Christian life is so much more than that. Remember, right at the beginning of the letter, Paul addresses um, his words to all of God's people in Christ Jesus. So Christians are not just those saved by Christ, nor are they just those who follow after Christ. Both of those things are, of course, true. Christians are those who truly participate in Christ. In many ways, that's very difficult to grasp. It's a deep mystery. The best analogy we've got that God gives us is that of a union in in marriage. That's why union, uh, why marriage is meant to be a wonderful gift given to express, although imperfectly, the oneness between Christ and his bride, the church. That is, we are bound to Christ spiritually and intimately by a bond that was planned before time and that can never be broken. We in him and he in us. Of course, sin continues to dwell in us, seeking to dig in, but wonderfully, sin no longer confines, um, defines us. It no longer identifies us or rules us. Instead, we are entirely redefined, re-identified and incorporated, brought into Christ and into his unique relationship to the Father. So the Christian life involves living in Christ, receiving all the benefits of his salvation through his perfect death and his obedient life, and living in intimate communion with him. Now the implications of this are staggering. What it means is that God not only gives us the gift of salvation He also ensures that we are transformed by that very same gift. How does he do that? By the presence and love of Christ. If you have any encouragement, Paul says, from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, the presence and love of Christ, which is mediated to us by the common sharing in the spirit. Christ himself is laying hold of us that's what brings change as we will sing shortly yet not i but christ in me now that's not to say that there's no room for effort in the christian life clearly not because paul then goes on to implore the philippians to make his joy complete by being like-minded having the same love being one in spirit one in mind doing nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit etc cetera, etc cetera. but as we'll see next week Working out our salvation is not something we do apart from God. In fact, it remains God's work in us. The point is, mindful of the reality and nature of who we are in Christ and of his transforming work in us, we can and should confidently pursue unity because unity in the church is the visible overflow of our union with Christ. It's what we're meant to be, what we're made to be. So be like-minded. That is literally contemplate, think on the same thing. Be one in vision and outlook, having the same love. That is be one joined together in love in a love that extends from the comfort and love of God we receive in Christ, which is a love that is patient and kind, that honors others, doesn't hold grudges. It's a love that rejoices in the truth and always protects and trusts and hopes and perseveres. Be one in spirit, that is of one accord, working together, pulling from the same direction, singing from the same hymn sheet, whatever metaphor you want to use, It's about valuing the harmony of Christ's body rather than dragging things or people in our own direction. And of one mind that is on the same page in the faith, promoting the interests of Christ to the glory of God. Oneness is befitting of God's people and who we are. What might that look like for you in these times? How could you and I promote the oneness of Christ's body, the church. Those are some questions to ponder, perhaps in grow groups this coming week. It's certainly not easy at the moment with social distancing and Zoom and the rule of six and restrictions on numbers at our services, which is why it's all the more important that we do pursue it. On the other side of the coin, disunity is at odds with who we are in Christ doing things out of selfish ambition or or vain conceit arises out of self-love. Some old writers um, argue that this kind of self-love is a kind of lust because it's aroused when everyone wants to guard obstinately to their own opinion. And they write that vain glory tickles our minds so that everyone is delighted um, by our own inventions. Just to be clear, self love is not the same thing as care of self. We, as people made by God, are fearfully and wonderfully made. We're creatures made in the dignity of God's image. We're commanded to rest and be dependent on God. We're vulnerable to illness. We need sleep and food and exercise, as well as spiritual nourishment. The issue here is not care of self, but a self love that breeds arrogance, greed, jealousy, vanity, irritability, and self-centered gain, all of which can and should be undercut, undercut by the grace of God through our union with Christ. So we've seen who we are in Christ and what we're to pursue, unity with one another. The question is, how can we foster that unity Or by the example of christ we pursue unity through humility you may have seen in the news this week that a very important investigation report on safeguarding and abuse in the anglican church was published the ICSA report you can read it online i'm not going to go into the details but i can tell you it makes for very difficult reading What it shows is how a number of ordained ministers in the Church of England and the Church of Wales groomed, coerced, and abused those who were supposed to be in their care, all for their own gratification. Not only this, the wider church dismissed many of these allegations from victims, they failed to act on them, and in some cases actively covered up the abuses for fear of reputational damage to the church. For years, there have been a number of church ministers who wore clergy collars and even preached the gospel of Christ as a platform for their own gain. At great expense and damage to others. It's absolutely tragic. Although that's an extreme example of some looking to their own twisted interests, it illustrates how easy it is to appear humble outwardly and yet to self-serve inwardly. And we, as a a self-professing gospel church, are not immune to that. It is the instinct of sin that continues to dwell within, to serve ourselves, to consume, and to use things or even people for our own ends. Not only is that our natural instinct apart from Christ, it's actually what we're actively told to do by the many voices around us. They say, do everything you can to build up your self-esteem. Be proud and value yourself above others. Always look to your own interests, not to those who hold you back. In your relationships with others, have the mindset of the individualist, who, being who they want to be, consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to take hold of. They make themselves everything by pursuing the very best for themselves, that they might be idolized by others. Yet that is not the way of Christ. In contrast to that, we're instructed, verse 3, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. That means condescending, coming down from whatever privileges or advantages or positions of power and influence we have for the good of others. It means using our gifts to serve the body. It means thinking collectively, not individually. Helping those in need or those who consider themselves weak and lowly. It means saying we, not me. How do we do that where we are in these times there is no doubt that it's much much harder at the moment amidst all the barriers and restrictions yet yeah, i don't know about you but i've been struck by how the little ordinary things we do have taken on great meaning and significance in these times like the two or three people in our congregation who each week print out and hand deliver a copy of the the service liturgy, the sermon and the note sheet to those who don't have internet access. It's so kind of them. Or those who've opened up their homes and their tables on a Sunday to have someone in who otherwise be on their own. In these times when face to face is somewhat lost, physical presence means so much. One person in our grow group came to church in person for the first time last week, and that wasn't easy for all sorts of reasons, yet she shared with the group how emotional and special it felt just to be with God's people, and I rejoiced at seeing her there, and we got to share in the worship of our God together. Some of us will be able to do more than others, given our circumstances. I actually don't want to provide a list of humble and generous things you could do. A better question than what we do is how can we cultivate it? How can we cultivate humility to serve the body of Christ and to build um, Christ's bride up? you want to grow in humility that you might live in a manner worthy of the gospel of christ and build up his church well here's what god's word says to us look to christ receiving the grace extended to us through our union with him and look at christ the incomparable example of humility verse five in your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. We can't walk in Christ's ways without first contemplating on Christ himself. Coupled with Paul's instructions and exhortations, the apostle brings Christ before their eyes. And by the Spirit, that exercise of gazing on him forms our posture and gives us a vision of a fruitful and joyful life in him, life as it's meant to be lived. So that's what we're going to do now. Uh, Briefly, with these remaining verses, let us gaze on Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appear- uh, being made in human likeness. and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. When we looked at John, uh, John's gospel, chapters one to five before the summer, Christ's divine nature was very much at the fore, his godness. Remember, he is God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made one in being with the father. And the question we have here is, is that undermined by Christ becoming a servant and taking on human flesh? Does the fact that Christ made himself nothing imply that the son gave up his godness? Well, the answer is no. In taking on flesh, the son did not lose his divine nature. That would make him less than God and therefore not God at all. Rather, he concealed it. In doing so, he remained what he was, but he also assumed, took on human flesh. And at that moment, says Calvin, he began to pay the price of liberation in order to redeem us. Not only is Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, one person in the blessed trinity, he truly became a human being, like us in every way except for sin, that is the mystery of the incarnation, and in his perfect life he became the true image bearer, the faithful son of Adam, the loyal firstborn son that Israel was intended to be. And in the unity of his person, he fulfilled the work required of him as a man. Becoming the great high priest who represents us, whose obedience all the way to death becomes the source of our salvation. Now he did all of that, not because he needed to for his own gain. The divine son cannot gain anymore. But because of out of his infinite goodness, He wanted us. He chose us. According to God's eternal plan, the Lord of life voluntarily came down. How great the love of God for us, for Christ to descend from such a height. And how arrogant of us to exalt ourselves, to use and neglect others for our own gain, when this is what Christ did for us. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Of course, the grave was not the end for Jesus and united to him. It's not the end for us. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. At this afternoon's service, we'll be gazing a bit more on Christ's exaltation and all that means for us and for the church. Um, If you can't make it this afternoon and you're interested in that, there will be a recording which we'll make available later on. But I'm afraid for now, in the interests of of time, um, I'm going to leave you hanging there um, to reflect upon Christ's exaltation and um, and glory, Um, but do tune in later if you'd like. For now, let's close in prayer using an old but fitting prayer called the Valley of Vision. Let's pray. Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, you have brought me to the Valley of Vision, where I live in the depths, but see you in the heights. Hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold your glory. Let me learn my paradox, that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all that to bear the cross is to wear the crown that to give is to receive that the valley is the place of vision lord in the daytime stars in the daytime stars can be seen from deepest wells and the deeper the wells the brighter your stars shine and so let me find your light in my darkness your life in my death your joy in my sorrow, your grace in my sin, your riches in my poverty, your glory in my valley. Amen.
0: Over to Mike Reeves, who's going to lead us.